Many are saying, oh, that we might see better times. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when grain and wine and oil increase. I lie down at peace. At once I fall asleep, for only you, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Those are the final three verses of Psalm 4, which is the psalm appointed for today, the third Sunday of Easter, April 18th, 2021. And with that, we will begin today's podcast, and we're looking at uh, three lessons, Acts 3, 12 to 19, 1 John 3, 1 to 7, and Luke 24, 36, B through verse 48. <clears throat> so we're continuing to look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples, and, and so the gospel today is uh, one of those uh, passages, and it's a passage that, that I believe is the passage um, that precedes last week's, actually. I think it's the first resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples on that first night of the day of the resurrection on Easter itself. And so that's the setting for that. And the setting for the Acts lesson is Peter and John have been going to the temple. And as they pass by the beautiful gate, they see a man there who had been there for decades who was unable to walk. And he was begging. And Peter uh, had looked at him and said, look at me. I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have is this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so the man got up and not only walked, but he leapt. So the man who's been paralyzed from the waist down for all his life now is not just tolerably walking with the assistance of, of several people, as you would if at best you were able to stand, but no, he was walking and leaping and praising God. So there, there's not just tolerable healing, not just a partial healing, but, but a, a complete healing of these atrophied muscles that had never been used. And suddenly now they're able to support him on his own while he walks and leaps and praises God. So that's the the setting for um, the Acts lesson. He has, uh, They've just done this, and now they're speaking to the people in the temple shortly thereafter. So there, there's your setting for those two uh, lessons. So what we're going to do, though, is we're going to begin with uh, the first John passage, actually, because um, John's talking to a particular congregation of people. We're not sure where this congregation is exactly, but we do know that it's a congregation that's been um, tested, let's say, by those who have come preaching a different gospel, a gospel um, without really a cross, not the cross as we know it, but the cross that they have invented for themselves through this other form of knowledge that they claim to possess, this Gnosticism, this knowledge that, that they claim comes from the Spirit, but it doesn't have anything to do with the reality of the gospel that John preached, that John lived for those three years with Jesus. And, and that's the thing that we have to be very careful about. It's a thing we always need to be very careful about. And, and that is, is, is that we um, submit ourselves to the Word of God. And things that are brought to us that are at variance with the Word of God, then we need to be able to, to look at and evaluate those claims. But we evaluate them in light of Scripture, but not just Scripture. At least in the Anglican world, we, we value three different things, right? So we value what's called the three-legged stool. And I'll explain a little bit to you about that three-legged stool real quickly. And so those three legs of the stool 
of, on which theology is based within the Anglican world are scripture, tradition, and reason. Now, that makes a fine little statement, but that statement doesn't convey the reality of how Anglicanism has done theology down through the ages. It conveys the, the reality of how it's being done today in much of the Anglican world, at least in the, in the western part of the Anglican world. Um, but it's not, however, in line with the way things have traditionally been done in the church. Um, so three legs, scripture, tradition, and reason. And, and tradition should mean what the church has always believed. How do we interpret something, how do we interpret current events, for instance, in light of what the church has traditionally believed, what the, the tradition we have received from those who gone before us? Because the um, Anglican church, in many ways, was formed at the Reformation. There was always a church in England, yes, uh, or at least since going back to at least the third century, if not before that. And so the, the church existed prior to that, it, but it, not as an autonomous body. It, it only became, it was separated from Rome at the Reformation in the 1520s. And so the, the tradition that it refers to refers to the tradition that goes back to the early church. It refers to the tradition as received by, by the Anglican church from what had come before. But the Reformation means that it also rejected some of that tradition, where that tradition departed from conformity with Scripture, then we didn't receive that tradition. We rejected that part of tradition. So tradition is evaluated, and it was evaluated right from the beginning in light of one thing, and that's Scripture. And so we, we reject those things that are part of the tradition that are out of line with Scripture. They're just simply pronouncements from uh, the Pope, for instance. Uh, we reject those things that are out of line with Scripture, and, and we'll talk about that just in a bit, about how we get to that kind of place, and, and that we get that from Martin Luther, actually, the, who ends up founding, obviously, the Lutheran Church, but also is the, sort of the father of the Reformation in the 1520s. And we, we don't receive all tradition equally. That tradition had to be evaluated. And in order for the Reformation to be true, then we had to reject some parts of the tradition and say we're not receiving those things. Well, what was the basis for that rejection? The basis was how they're out of conformity with the Holy Scriptures. And so anything that's, that's outside of conformity with God's Word, then we said we're not receiving that part of the tradition. So we pick and choose with respect to tradition. And then the third leg is reason. And that's not an individualized practice, although that's what it's become in too many places because we've gone through all this mess with deconstructionism and everything else in, in the literary world, and we've applied that then broadly to everything, and we've decided that we can reject anything called a meta-narrative, an overarching narrative that seeks to explain the way things are. So, for instance, the, the creation story of Genesis um, now gets just totally deconstructed and, and done away with. If you don't like it, then you can get rid of it. You have the right as an autonomous individual to do that until it then begins to conflict with something somebody else holds dear and precious, and, and now you've created a microaggression by failing to receive that, and then it just goes on and on and on from there. And so um, there, there are meta narratives that shape the culture and that are shaping the culture today. They're brand new meta narratives about what's right and what's wrong, 
And so we've got to, with reason, what we have to do is, is use that reason, understanding that um, even my reason participated in the fall. And so while I might reason to a particular conclusion on something, the reality is to the extent my reason conflicts with Scripture, then again, I have to submit reason to that same test that we submitted tradition to. And, and we can see that again and again because there are some things that Jesus says that, that require us to, to be greatly challenged. If you've ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart, well, you know, it's kind of sort of built into the DNA that at some point in, in time I will. And then, you know, maybe that maybe there was one and that person ended up being my life, my wife, I mean. But prior to that, then I would have been guilty of sin. And so that conflicts with my reason in some ways. And, and the unaided reason is a very limited thing. We, we come to very tentative conclusions about a great many things in science. Um, for instance, even, even a great intellect like Albert Einstein um, hated quantum physics, and his response to quantum physics was, God, don't play dice. And so there, there's a, there was a limit beyond which um, Einstein was not willing to go, and it's partially because that made everything more difficult. If you've got to take into account quantum-level uh, happenings, which are spooky events at a distance, is the one, another way they're getting def- defined, that then it becomes a more difficult thing to say I'm going to rely solely on reason because my reason actually won't tell me everything that I need to know about any given situation. So there's a limit to, to the ability of reason to support me and to keep me in line. And so the Reformation occurs over the battle for truth and the battle for scriptural truth and does what does matter and what doesn't matter. So Luther gets upset because he sees the church in error on multiple things, but he also sees a church that's, that's corrupt, and it's doing things like selling indulgences, um, which is to say you can pay a certain sum of money. If you pay that money to the church, then, well, we can get you out of purgatory, which is the place where the Roman Catholic Church has landed, that there's this season of time in between uh, my death and the resurrection, the, the general resurrection of the dead, where I spend time being purged from my sins, called purgatory. So I have to undergo uh, difficulties and, and penances to do that. And so what the church was doing, still does actually, is sell indulgences. And so you could pay your way out of some of that time in purgatory, and, and they were happy to help you with the accounting of that uh, to figure out exactly what you would get for your buck. And so Luther objected to that and many other things within the church at the same time. And so on uh, October the 31st of 1519, he put up the 95 theses, T-H-E-S-E-S, on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral and, and invited the church to debate him on that. And so that then becomes, over the next couple of years, um, quite a cause celeb. Luther, Luther is being excommunicated from the church by the Pope, and, and then there's actually an edict against him that makes him uh, an outlaw, and that anybody who kills him can be said to have done something good for the state. And so Luther appeals to the Pope and asks for a trial, and the Pope ignores him. And so he goes sort of, you know, over his head. I don't know whether that's the right way to say it or not. Probably not. But anyway, he appealed to the the civil authority, to the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, 
for a trial, which he was granted. And he was granted in, in a, a meeting at Worms in Germany and on, on this day, 500 years ago. Martin Luther made his defense. He was called on the 17th of April and was asked uh, to do basically two things. He was asked to confirm a certain set of books were written by him, which he was happy to do. And then they asked him to recant <laughs> of those things. And he said, give me a day to think about that. And so on April the 18th, 1521, he makes his defense, and it, he ends basically with these words. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. So Luther's argument <clears throat> invoked two things. It, it invoked Holy Scriptures and it invoked evident reason. But the other thing that it did was it brought into question the traditions of the church because he says that they have erred repeatedly and con contradicted themselves. One of the great... Um, things that happened with the invention of the printing press around this same time was is that that those previous works were now more readily available to people other than just the scholars in the Vatican and so so it, it became more evident to more people that wait a minute the church said this here and this here so those two things can't stand together both of them is as uh, pronouncements ex cathedra from the throne which are binding upon all consciences of, of Christians so that's Luther's big argument here is, is that I'm just going to fall back on the Scripture because I, I know that I can trust the Scriptures. And that's John's argument <clears throat> when he's speaking here. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So in other words, we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us, and, and we also have the, not just the witness of the Holy Spirit in us, but the, but the movement of the Holy Spirit in us to let us become more and more like Jesus. Because what, what John said is you have the paradigm for what we're supposed to be, or the archetype of what we were supposed to be, maybe, uh, in Jungian terms, is, and so we have that before us. Now pursue the same kind of righteousness and the purity that was in Jesus. And so he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And the argument John's making here is against this, this um, alternative gospel, let's call it, that, that says that, that Jesus just seemed to be a man. He wasn't really. He was just sort of a soul inhabiting this costume called a body. And therefore, they come to the conclusion that the body itself doesn't matter. It's just this sort of disposable costume, like a Halloween costume that, that you know, we just we wear for a period of time. And then we exchange it 
for something radically different that has no connection with the body that we have on earth and in this life. And so John's argument is, no, the body matters. The body matters completely because what had happened with these people had described sin or defined sin, actually, as something that only affects the soul, that the body itself can do anything it wants as long as it doesn't affect the soul. And so John's argument here is, no, that's not true. And it's his basis for the argument is the physicality of Jesus's body. And he will say things like, we know because we saw him, we touched him, we, we experienced life with him. And, and so we know that, that he didn't just seem to be a man, he was truly a man. And so John is, is appealing to this one thing, and that he's appealing to the Word of God. He's appealing to the Word of God lived in Jesus Christ, the Jesus that John himself lived with during the three years that he was his disciple prior to becoming an apostle. And so John is relying on, on truth. He's relying on reality, something he knows because he experienced it, as opposed to these who now come and claim to have different knowledge from a different source. And so John's saying, no, 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 that doesn't fit with the Word of God. That, that you, don't, you won't find this weird sort of thing that you're dreaming up in, uh, in Scripture anywhere, this, this dichotomy and division between soul and body doesn't exist is a lot of what John's saying. So when he's talking about those who keep on sinning, what he's saying is those who have have no regard whatever for the body and therefore they deny that they're even sinning because they don't believe they're sinning against anything. So in 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 further proof of that then is this gospel lesson that we have today from Luke. And, and it's, we're told as they were talking about these things, what, what had happened in the last few days, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace, be, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. I, I'll bet they did. That's not an unfair kind of an idea that they would have thought they had seen something other than the real, the physical Jesus because they saw his body in the tomb. They saw him die on the cross. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So I believe that that some of these kinds of things, the things that Luke is speaking about here, and remember Luke is a physician by training, and so Luke has a, has a good understanding of these issues. And so here I believe that Luke is writing, I believe it because it happened, let's start there. But the reason that he records these particular words of Jesus and these particular actions of Jesus is to fight against this very idea that Jesus just seemed to be a man. That no, there's a physical reality to Jesus, even the resurrected Jesus, in the body. And so he, he is elevating the place of the body in the resurrection as well by telling these stories. But, they're, they're, but I believe they were written because they're true, but specifically they were written because there's, a, there's an attack on the idea of the physicality of Jesus. And so Luke writes these things because of that. And, and I've told this story before of I listened to an Easter sermon one time but preached by a bishop in the Episcopal Church, and I came away from that not believing 
that 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 man believed in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and so later found out yeah that's exactly right he didn't believe in that he believed essentially that Jesus did appear to his disciples but in non-bodily form well the gospels don't allow us to believe that the gospels confront us with the reality of the physical resurrection of Jesus and here is one of those places where it does. Jesus himself speaks against it. Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus say that? Because there's an understanding of what they thought was going on and he wanted to correct the thought behind that. That no, there's something definitely physical about the resurrection. And then he had said this and he showed them his hands and his feet and they saw the the scars where the nails had been and where the spear had been they saw that and then this is my favorite little thing that that's in in all of scripture and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling it's too good to be true they 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 couldn't allow themselves to fully believe this because it was too good to be true. It was too real to be true. And I understand a little bit about that. I understand a a bit about that that I never understood before because I've watched my son come back from the dead over the last month. And when I would see progress, when I would see something that was was, um, encouraging, sometimes I did disbelieve. I would question myself. Did I really see that? Is that what really happened? And so we, we've, we've lived through this time in our lives of disbelieving for joy. You, you, what you have to do sometimes is, is to say, yes, I do believe that I saw that, but I'm going to do what Mary did. I want to ponder these things in my heart before I share them with the world. Because maybe I saw something that nobody else saw. Maybe this is too good to be true. And then what Jesus does while they were still disbelieving for joy and marveling, he says, hey, you got anything to eat? Huh? (laughs) You hungry? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And again, there's there's a reason that Jesus is saying things that he's saying and doing the things that he's doing, and that is he's proving something. He's saying something about the theology of the body. When he does that, there's a physicality to the resurrection, and, and even then he is eating this piece of fish, and he ate it so they could see that spirit and body were joined with one another. There was, there was a, a reality to the physical existence of even the resurrected Christ. And he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he's, so what's he helping him to do? He's helping him to understand the written word of God. And he says, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And so he's not only confirming his own physicality, he's confirming their reasons because he's enlivening it by the power of the Holy Spirit when it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What he's doing is giving them the Holy Spirit to help them understand and guide them to understand what has happened. That he should suffer and die and on the third day rise from the dead. So that he's enabling them through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand these things and to believe these things. 
And so the Spirit is showing and leading them into truth. And he says, you're witnesses of these things. You've seen all this. You've heard all this. Now you know what all of this means. And it's a powerful thing to have that, wis- that witness in ourselves. And, and we see the power of that in that passage from Acts, where I've told you that, that he, Peter proclaimed to this crippled man that he would be healed, that he should stand up and rise up and walk in the name of Jesus. And, and then the man does. And then Peter now has to explain this to the people around him. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. He's going to talk about Jesus. And and that's that's an iffy proposition because it's likely to bring the wrath down on him. And so he goes on to say, and this is basically the same sermon that he preaches on the day of Pentecost. He says that that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. In other words, you overrode justice. You overrode Roman justice by demanding this Jesus be crucified. He said, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you. What a horrible thing you've done. You you have denied the holy and righteous one. You denied the Messiah and demanded instead that a murderer be released. And then this is, I mean, can this language get any more powerful? And you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. What a what a, a powerful paradox Peter came up with. And then he says, whom God raised from the dead. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is taught, that is through Jesus, has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. So the power of the resurrection was the power to heal. It's the power to make whole in this life. And this life matters. And Jesus' miracles, the healings, and everything else that he did prove that this life, this body matters. And we need to remember that. We need to take care of this body. We need to, to maintain it. We need to do all the things necessary to make sure that it's in, in, in as good a condition as we can keep it in. But what we have to also do is take it all seriously, take the Word of God seriously, and allow it to speak to us in fresh new ways. And, and even where we would prefer it didn't say something, then we have to submit ourselves in the same way that Luther did to the Word of God. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. So my conscience has to be captive to the Word of God. It has to conform itself to the will of God and the Word of God. And it's we're to be transformed by the inworking power of the Holy Spirit, which would conform us to His image which is what John is encouraging his people to do. And so Luther says, that's what I'm trying to do. No matter what the cost to me is for this, 
I'm willing or unwilling to deny the, the, the reality of the Word of God. I'm not willing to suspend that or give that up in any way. And so while I might have a three-legged stool, one of those legs is so out of proportion to the others as to make the metaphor itself incomprehensible because that stool couldn't stand. Because those other two legs are much smaller and weaker and they depend on the Word of God for any strength that they might have in themselves. And so Luther, unafraid, stands before the Diet at Worms and pronounces, no, I will not recount of these things because I believe them all to be things that are that are in conformity with the Word of God in a way that the things you're asking me to accept in opposition to that are not. And so Luther leaves Worms and becomes sort of an outlaw leader of the Reformation for the rest of his life. And I'm thankful today that he stood there and declared himself to be submitted completely to the Word of God and none other. So then he writes along the way, he writes a hymn, and that hymn is one of my favorite hymns of all time, and that is, Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he writes these two verses that I'm going to conclude with. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.